Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. Today's message is by our guest speaker, Ross Hastings, on God and human sexuality. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Well, it's a great privilege to be with uh, Rod and Anne today, and friends, and, and, and Archie, the theologian at Acts, and uh, who I got to know because he taught at Regent for a while. Um, it is a, it's such a pleasure to, to be with you uh, today and to share on this difficult but important topic for the church today uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, yes, I do come from, uh, I, I spent years 9 till 19 in what was then Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe. My parents were Scottish and my blood is Scottish. It kind of reminds me of, you know, uh, in the British Isles, they say that the English love Christianity because they can talk about it. And the Welsh love Christianity because they can sing about it. The Irish love Christianity because they can fight about it. And the Scots love Christianity because grace is free. And um, So I'm so delighted to share with you today that grace is free. This morning is a sermon, and I'm going to introduce a number of the concepts we'll talk about in more detail tonight. Uh, but I, I primarily wanted to address the heart today. Um, I'm so glad with the worship this morning how much was, em- was emphasized the love of God. Uh, the love of God for every single one of us because every single one of us is broken in some way, even in the sexual area. And so we welcome the love of God. At the same time, we know that the love of God, I think in the world today, the concept of love has no moral content. But in the Bible, love has moral content. So when, God, when Jesus says the two most important commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he says love your neighbor as yourself, that last part, love your neighbor as yourself, is a summary of the last six commandments. So in other words, truth goes with love. That's very difficult for our culture to grasp. Uh, but I want to talk about um, what, I, what I want to share with you. I want to do in the context of... Um, an exposition of Psalm 63. And if you have a Bible with you, you can follow with me. Um, Psalm 63, and the first eight verses is all we'll get to today. You, God, are my God. That is a statement of covenantal love. That's covenant And I think we all need to begin our considerations of the area of sexuality from this place, that we are held within the unconditional covenant love of God. But then it moves on. Earnestly I seek you. So being in covenant love with God doesn't mean to say, I sit back and don't seek him. It's like two people at an altar being married who, who express covenant, and then they say to each other, we don't need to seek one another. We don't need to seek deeper intimacy with one another. We can just sort of, you know, cruise along from now on because we're in covenant. But actually, covenant inspires seeking. And so the psalmist says, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I want to suggest to you, if the first phrase of this psalm teaches us that we are held in the covenant love of God, the second part of this verse urges us, in light of that, to seek God and satisfy our deepest core longings in Him. And in so doing, 
the rest of our longings, whatever they are, are going to be ordered by that love and seeking of God. Because we all struggled with disordered desires. He goes on to say, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips. My mouth will praise you. That's simply an expression of what seeking intimacy means with God. And I think we can also... um, Translate that into how we seek intimacy with one another if we're married with our spouses and and if we are in friendships uh, with with our friends. So what I hope to do this morning uh, is introduce the grounding of Christian thought about human sexuality, and we're going to look at that. I apologize this, but, but we need to do some theology today. We need to talk about God We're going to look at the theology of human sexuality, what it's grounded in, and we need to also look at biblical discourse, which is always the foundation of our theology. In an era when ethics, the ethics of sexuality is deeply contested, even in the church. But prior to launching into this discussion, it's all important for me to say that ethics, so ethics means what's right and what's wrong, morals if you like. Um, that word even can sound really cold and hard, what's right and what's wrong. And I'm going to be stressing in my talk today, uh, today and again tonight that ethics must flow out of the gospel. It must be charged by what God has already done for us. It has to be evangelical ethics, not legal ethics is what I'm trying to say. But I wish to say at the outset... That in all situations, no matter how far some persons may stray from the ethical behavior commended by the biblical text and justified by theological rationale, they are still loved by God. They are still and they are first human persons made in the image of God. I don't know if you noticed that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I'm going to talk about this in detail tonight, what it means that we're made in the image of God. The most important dynamic of it is that we are, we're, we're built for relationality with God. We're built to have relationship with Him as persons. That's the crucial part. There's also a functional part uh, as well uh, about the image of God that we'll look at tonight. But Genesis 1.27 is before the fall. Genesis 9 is after the fall. But even after the fall, God's still calling all human beings image bearers. So no matter how fallen we may be, how broken we may be, we are loved by God and we are image bearers um, in a kind of a a non-degreed way. And yet we are being called by God into the gospel in order to recover the fullness of the image of God in a degreed way so that we're like Christ. But right at the start, before I get into all of the, uh, the ethical aspects, I want to just declare that the gospel of Jesus, redemption, and the beginning of restoration towards wholeness is always a possibility for everybody. And Christian ethics may be distinguished from pastoral care, but it must never be separated from pastoral care. We're talking about persons when we talk about uh, certain aspects of sexual brokenness, always talking about Persons, persons loved by God. 
Now, before I get to expanding this text in detail, um, I want to suggest to you two um, important introductory perspectives. One of my concerns about evangelicals when they look at subjects like sexuality is we go to the biblical text, and of course we should. That's our ultimate source of authority. Not the culture, but the Word of God. That's our ultimate source of authority in all matters of faith and practice. I'm not critiquing that you go to the Bible, but sometimes my concern is that we go to the Bible and we read the texts, and we don't ask the, mean, we don't ask the question, why? So for example, let's take same sex, the same-sex act. It's condemned in the Old Testament. There's no trajectory where in the New Testament suddenly it's approved. It's condemned in the New Testament, the same-sex act. God invites us to press into our identity as male and female. That's part of who we are. We're made in the image of God for relationship with God and relationship with one another as male and female. We relate to one another as sexed beings. That's all part of the Word of God. The question is why? Why is God against same-sex acts? Why is it that we as Christian people who follow the orthodox perspective would say that people who have the same sex desires um, should actually seek help for, uh, towards a life of celibacy. That's the, that's the biblical way. Why? So first of all, I want to say we, we are not good at understanding the meaning of sex. And I want to just say that's often because we don't recognize the importance of the Imago Dei or the Im image of God teaching in Genesis, and we don't, uh, above all, reflect on the fact that we are made in the image of God as persons who are male and female, equal before God, and yet different. And how that reflects on one of the primary revelations of the whole Bible, that is that our God is a God who is Trinity where there are three persons in the Trinity, they are all equal, and each is for the other, each is in the other, they demonstrate the, be beautiful, be the beauty of mutual love for one another, and yet they are differentiated. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. That differentiation within the Godhead is the reason why when he creates human beings in his image, they are differentiated between male and female. Our nature as sexed beings is sacramental. It's a sign of what God is like. And what does that mean for us as human beings? First of all, those of us who are single in particular, and we are not able to express our sexuality in terms of sex acts, except in marriage, so we're single, what are we, what, what are we to do with that? I think the most important perspective I've discovered in my study of sexuality is that uh, God has given every single human being a drive within themselves that is a drive first and foremost towards God, in contemplation, and secondly, towards fellow human beings in community. And I have discovered that having sex is actually not a human right. 
And nor does having sex constitute someone human. And here's how I know that. Jesus never had sex, and he was the greatest human being there's ever been. And for those of us who are married, we are given a drive towards the other, towards our spouse, and beyond that, but in terms of the sex act, there's a reciprocity of male and female that is absolutely crucial to reflecting who God is. God, in his triune being, is persons who are equal but differentiated. We as human, be- human image bearers are persons who are equal but differentiated. And um, in terms of our singleness, that drives us out of ourselves towards the divine other to satisfy our souls, as Psalm 63 describes, in order that our um, sexual, sexual desires will be properly ordered and that we will find deep friendships with people and, uh, and so on. And within marriage, we have this huge dynamic of seeking to be like God in our marriage, where equals relate to one another with reciprocity. You know, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 7 and said to the man in that, in that chapter, you know, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the woman, and the woman's body, but, uh, uh, and, and vice versa. That, that was so counter to the, to, the, to the whole culture of the time. A complete reciprocity between male and female. Uh, the male body belongs to the woman and the woman's body belongs to the male. That complete reciprocity was something new uh, in the culture in the time and that's a beautiful expression um, of, of, uh, it's a beautiful expression of the reciprocity in Christian marriage that reflects the Godhead. So that's the first, I'm going to come back to this and expound it on, on especially in more detail tonight as we talk about the Trinity, because I know the Trinity is not always the easiest, um, easiest doctrine for people, but I just want to, I want to, I really just want to affirm this very strongly in your presence, the God that we worship is the triune God. It's not like, and I think sometimes we imagine, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll discover some God behind the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who's the real God. No, no, you won't. You'll only find Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because that's who God is. And that's who Jesus revealed. When Jesus says things like, I am in my Father and my Father is in me, he's telling us what the Trinity is like. He's giving us the basis for all human relationships, both in terms of the mutuality and the difference um, that's reflected in our sexual nature as, as human beings. But the second point I want to make before I get to this passage uh, is also introductory. It's this, that cultural forces in our time are very powerful. And I'm afraid that sometimes the church today has capitulated to the culture in ways that are really unfortunate. It seems to me that the church should not be surprised at the triumph of views of sex that are grounded in secularism, a mindset and practices within which sex has lost its deeper meaning. See, in a pre-Christian culture, the early Gentile church did not have surprise at what the culture believed and practiced in its promiscuous Greek setting. Paul shows great awareness, and he tells the Christians in Corinth, don't be surprised at what's happening, because the, the, the grounding for that sexual behavior is different to that of the gospel. And of course, he does call on the Christian church uh, to have an influence um, on the world from the inside out. 
But today, we live, if that was a pre-Christian culture, today, we as Christians in Canada live in a post-Christian culture. We no longer live in a Christian country. It is not surprising, therefore, that sex and marriage are viewed in a post-Christian way. It should also not be surprising that many cultural narratives are in conflict with the biblical narrative and its inferences and instructions about sex. I'm going to give you about five or six different narratives that run through our culture right now. Um, And I want to give them to you, and I'm not going to give you right now the corresponding biblical theological narratives that counter them. I may mention a few things, but I'm going to leave that for tonight. And so you can come back tonight and, uh, and hear about the Christian narratives that sh- should be shaping the way we think about sexuality and marriage. But let me give you a cryptic summary of some of these cultural narratives. And let me do so because our task today as the church is to upend those narratives, to turn them on their heads, and to show a better narrative. So let me give you a few of them. Number one, my body is mine, and I'm entitled to and have the right to use it as I please. This is the narrative of individualism, the narrative of autonomy. It pervades our culture. It's the primary narrative. It affects end-of-life issues, by the way, not just sexual issues. It's grounded, you know, really about 150 years ago in the Enlightenment that said, I think, therefore I am. Individualism. Whereas we know the biblical narrative is, I belong, therefore I am. Second, the act of sex is morally fine as long as there's mutual consent. So gone is the idea that the sex act embodies the surrender of the person which comes from belonging to the other person by covenant relationship. So in other words, premarital sex is fine. Three, the act of sex is simply the exchange of bodily fluids and has no lasting relational impact or spiritual meaning. Fourth, the idea that sex before marriage between two people who love each other and who live it together is is wrong. That's just old school. Four, fifth, marriage is a contract in which I'm entitled to become more self-realized and more fulfilled. And if it doesn't deliver... Not only may I leave the marriage, I should leave the marriage. Seven, pornography is a harmless pastime. You know, we can talk about same-sex marriage, we can talk about all kinds of aspects of sexuality today, but you know, the single biggest problem around sexuality in our churches today is pornography. That's the one we should be the most worried about. It's our most urgent issues. Jesus you know, Jesus didn't, you know, Jesus didn't live in a time when people could turn on an iPhone. But he was very aware of the power of the sex drive when it's disordered, outside of the control and wonderful ordering of a life with God. That's why he said, if you look at a woman to lust after, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So contrary, I guess I broke my rule there and I gave you what I think the biblical narrative is. But uh, pornography is the objectification of a person of the opposite sex usually. And it's just simply wrong. And yet we somehow tolerate this in the life of the church. 
And, you know, the answer is not to condemn you. The answer is, if that's a struggle for you, to seek help, to satisfy your soul in intimacy with Christ, to open your life up to some accountability, and so on. Another one. People, even children, have the right to choose their own gender because gender is a socially imposed mental construct. Anyway, one that can be disconnected from the body. So gender trumps biology. Uh, folks, I cannot tell you how there's nothing new under the sun. This was the primary heresy that attacked the early church. It's the, the, the error of Gnosticism, where it's all about what I think, what I feel, and the body is just bad anyway, or the body is not to be listened to. Um, it's just... And, and let me remind you, and sorry I break the rule again, I just can't help myself, is that the Christian faith is grounded in the theology of the body. God became a body. The incarnation is the center of our Christian faith. And so the idea that the body... It uh, doesn't matter, but what I feel, and there's sort of all kinds of fads right, right, right now, especially I think with early teenagers in terms of I want to change my sex, I don't feel like I'm male today, or whatever. Can I say this? Our feelings are not a reliable guide for our ethics. And it's not that I don't have great sympathy for people who struggle with gender dysphoria. Some of them struggle with really good, they have really good reasons why they struggle with gender dysphoria. That can be psychological, that can be genetic, all kinds of things. And we, we need, as the, as the people of God, to show great love and understanding for people who have gender dysphoria. And walk the journey with them. But I think our greatest fact, the greatest factor that must guide us is what is the body? What is kind of body do you have? That's, that's the place to begin. And particularly sensitive right now to, in this talking about this area, to people who struggle, have struggled with intersex. Intersex is when people are born with compromised sex organs and the medical profession and parents do their best to try and decide which way a child should go, either male or female, and often it leads to a deep gender dysphoria and we need great compassion, great compassion for that situation. But what I am addressing is, in general, this idea that gender is what I feel. It's Gnostic. Another one. If someone has desire, maybe even orientation towards someone of, this, of the same sex, they should act out their desire in the same sex act. As I said a moment ago, our desires are not a safe way to do ethics. They are disordered. They are misdirected. Only God can satisfy our deepest core desires, as the psalm indicates. And when our souls are ordered by that, lesser desires can be assessed and properly directed. And again, for people who struggle with same-sex desires in our congregations, and I'm sure there are some in most congregations, they need our love. They need our sympathy. They need our care. Another one, the distinction between same-sex attraction and same-sex acts is not a real distinction. Because what I've just said to you a moment ago, that people who struggle with same-sex desires, um, when they come to faith in Christ, are called towards celibacy. If I were to um, stand on the street corner out there and say that, I would be shot down, perhaps even imprisoned. 
because people don't see the distinction between being same-sex attracted and same-sex acts. And they would say that's not a real distinction. The last of these narratives relates to hospitality. Hospitality is a big word within postmodern thinking in our time. Uh, there's a word called alterity, and it's basically, you know, I would say Canadian culture to a T. And I, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not speaking and, and I'm not judging Canadians, eh? I'm, I'm a Canadian myself, eh? Um, but I want to say that we are all about alter alterity. I must accept you as you are. And I should never say anything that might direct you away from what you're doing. But I want to tell you something. On the one hand, I want to challenge you to be people of hospitality to all people, right? We're called to be in hospitality to all people. But biblical hospitality is not the same as postmodern hospitality. We invite people to journey in our church, but where are we journeying in our church? Towards Christ. Towards disciple-making. making Before disciple-making. Towards transformation. And as I look across this audience, I recognize that, you know, the, the struggles we may have are very different. But all of us are called towards being like Christ. Who, a Christ who like every other man, possessed a sexual nature and lived in complete peace and harmony and uh, never, never lusted and, and never, ex and never uh, sinned. He was without sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. There was no sin in him. That's the person we're calling people to. And so we call them towards change. In other words, we love them as they are But we're not leaving them as they are. We're drawing them somewhere to a place of healing and wholeness and discipleship in Christ. Do you know, I suppose that those narratives may not surprise many of you. They're kind of common in the culture. But maybe what does might surprise you is how the church has imbibed those narratives indiscriminately. And they've become, the church has become so enculturated that they think and behave no differently than the culture does and have no rationale or motivation for being or doing otherwise. Our church in this era is being tested profoundly. And we have to stand for the Word of God. People, loving people, speaking the truth in love and drawing people to wholeness towards shalom. Do you know the only thing that can upend these cultural narratives and provide meaning to sex in its given goodness, enabling healthy singleness and healthy marriage, are the biblical narratives that I will share tonight. But I just want to say this, most importantly, God didn't give us regulations about sex because he's a killjoy. Right? Sex is a gift from God. It's part of being human. We rejoice in that gift. But he does give us regulations about how it functions, and here's why. He knows what will bring shalom. He knows what will bring flourishing to us. That's why I say all ethics must flow from the love of God and must bring to bear the realization that God wants good things for us. He wants shalom. He wants flourishing for us uh, in our lives. So that the world is fallen is not a novel concept. 
but that the world that the church has been so influenced is challenging. And um, I've written two books in this area. One's called Theological Ethics and one's called Pastoral Ethics. And I urge you, um, I'm, I'm the worst salesman ever. I had a whole bunch of books actually to come and share with you so you could buy them today. And I left them at home. You know, there, there's how much of a salesman I am. Um, but you can get them. Uh, you can get them online uh, if you go to, uh, to Amazon. Uh, but what fueled, I don't, I don't tell you about my books so you can buy them. Well, maybe that's part of it. I give, you, I give you information about my books because I have a deep, passionate concern for the church in our time to be true to the Word of God and yet uh, evangelical in the fullest sense, reaching out to touch uh, the world um, in, in, in all of its brokenness. Let me just rehearse what I've said to you. Number one, there is some theological meaning to sex that's really important to grasp. God doesn't give us direction about sex just because. He gives us direction about sex and helps us understand our sexual identity in light of who he is. We're talking theology proper here. We're talking the doctrine of God here. We're talking the Trinity here. And we're also talking about the relationship between Church and Christ, which is, you know, kind of, we are an image of the church. Every human person is an image of the church. Every marriage is an image of the church. Every person in their singleness, in their friendships, is an image of the church. The image of, and then the church is an image of the triune God. These are really important um, aspects of, the, of, of, of all of this. Um, there are two words that I want to use to summarize what I'm saying here from a theological perspective, and it's the words differentiated union. That the Trinity is three persons in differentiated union, and therefore we as human persons are in differentiated union, male and female. That's true in the Trinity, and it's true of Christ and his bride and his bride, and it's true of us as human beings, male and female. We are persons who are equal uh, but differentiated. Let me come now to this text. It's a beautiful text. Oh God, you are my God. If you read this psalm at a wedding and imagined it to be between the bride and the groom, you could be excused for that. It's such a beautiful psalm. It's all about, uh, it could look like a, a love letter between a married couple, but actually it is a love letter between um, the psalmist, David, and God. And as I said earlier, it begins with uh, the phrase, Oh God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. Well, if you've read your Old Testament and your New Testament, you'll know that those words are highly covenantal. Let me quickly go to the, uh, the New Testament, for example, where in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, um, the, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews says these amazing words. Um, he applies to the people of God of his day what has been promised in Ezekiel is now fulfilled and Jeremiah 30, 31 is now fulfilled in the new covenant people of God. And there are three amazing aspects of this covenant. But the first, the first words of the covenant are this. I will be their God and they will be my people. The second is, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. 
That's a great comfort, isn't it? Because as you sit there, and as I preach to you, I'm deeply conscious I'm, an, I'm imperfect. I don't have it all together in every aspect of my life. There are things in my life that I need to confess every day. And so I'm so, I'm so loved to be part of this amazing, unconditional covenant. There are two unconditional covenants in the Bible. The covenant that Abraham, God made with Abraham. And secondly, the one that's described in Jeremiah 31 to 33, the new covenant. Unconditional. This is what God has decided. He will be in relationship with you. He sought you out in Christ and by the Spirit brought you into relationship with Him, and now you can say this amazing reality, which I think is the crucial, core, stabilizing reality of the Christian faith that will help us through all of our struggles with our sexuality, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The Song of Solomon states it in very romantic terms, three times over. I am, I, it begins with, my beloved is mine, and I am his in chapter 2.16. In chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's, and he is mine. And then in chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. That actually, that whole book, I think, is largely about God's covenant faithfulness to his people, um, well, he describes it in the context of a human relationship, and the covenant between these two people is the solid thing that holds the ups and downs of their erotic love. Covenant. And so we rejoice. When we, come to, when we are people of, of, of faith and we've, we've come into marriage, you are, folks, you're not in a contract. You're in a covenant. You're in a covenant. goes all the way back to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. Notice, man and wife, not man and man. The word united in that passage, by the way, is a crucial text for sexual ethics in our time. First of all, you will leave, and that was a public leaving before they were married. Number two, you will be united to your wife. That's a covenant word. It's actually a word that, it's a little bit like superglue. It's superglue. You know, superglue is so strong that if you have two pieces of wood that are joined by superglue and you try, to, you try to pry them apart, the wood breaks before the glue breaks. And that's the concept here of covenant in marriage. But here's the important point. The third part of this great phrase is the two shall become one flesh. That's the sex act. But notice what precedes the sex act. Leaving publicly, uniting in covenant in a public way, and then and only then, the sex act. That says a lot about some aspects of sexual ethics, premarital sex, living together, etc., etc. So marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman that reflects the faithful and loyal covenant of God with mankind. Walt Wangren says, marriage bears a divinity. It bears a divinity. It's something, it's something that, that speaks of God. That's why we're so careful about, about it and about being in covenant faithfulness. It is sacramental. It's a sign of the covenant between God and humanity. It's the sign of the bond between Christ and His church. So marriage is between a man and a woman who together mirror the image of a triune God who is a communion of persons Himself Persons who are irreducibly distinct, equal in essence, but different with respect to personhood. Marriage is between man 
and woman because this symbolizes Christ and his church who are spoken of as bridegroom and, and also bride. We discern clearly from this that the same-sex sex act is disordered. Therefore, for these important sacramental reasons, but also because the Scriptures consistently forbid it in both Old Testament and New Testament, we take that position. The Bible speaks of sodomy, sodomy in consistent ways as against the will of God and, and not for the good of humanity. For one reason, it cannot lead to the perpetuation of the human race. There can be no procreation, in other words. There is no trajectory in the Bible. And I would, I'm going to stick my neck out and say all attempts to make the Old Testament and New Testament say things other than what they say in terms of the same plans, sense of Scripture are simply revisionists. They're revisionists. We're revising what the Word of God um, actually says. The prevailing concept of marriage in our culture is that of a contract rather than a covenant, as I said a moment ago. There are three differences between a contract and a covenant. I was standing uh, watching a wedding once in St. Andrews, New Brunswick, and watched the pastor join this couple in marriage, and he said these three things. He says, um, a covenant is based on trust, a contract on mistrust. Covenant involves unlimited responsibility while a contract defines limited liability. Covenant expresses unconditional love, whereas a contract reflects conditionality. I took it down, and here it is. So when two people enter marriage with the covenant relationship, they give each other the gift of a rock-solid stability that will carry them through the ups and downs of their experiences of love. This is the center of procreation for the human race, and God did this because it's good for us. All right, but to the next part of the psalm. We celebrate covenant God's covenant with us guides our covenant with each other. And I want to say to you, this is, um, this is an important reality that there are also for single people, there's, there is within the Bible one example of a covenant between single people. Not, on a, not at the same level of a marriage covenant, but Jonathan and David, one of the things I encourage for single people um, who obviously are challenged with not being able to express their, 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 their sexu sexuality in terms of sex acts. They express their sexuality um, by, being, by, by being people who are contemplative towards God and who move outwards towards other in relationships. And one of the ways in which they do that is with deep friendships. One of the things I encourage is, is to look at the, the friendship between David and Jonathan. And I know there's a certain agenda that people have had to say there's an example of homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David because it says they actually kissed each other and they made a covenant with each other and they loved each other as they loved their own souls. But I want to tell you, there's nothing of sexuality in that passage whatsoever. It's the beauty of friendship. You know, C.S. Lewis, I think, said that friendship 
is a deeper relationship than a marriage relationship, or it can be. And it can be fulfilling in that sense. The pursuit of deep and healthy friendships are so important, and uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a crucial piece in this. But let me come to this um, second main point here. So we have covenant relationship with God expressed in this beautiful phrase, you God are my God. But the psalmist doesn't rest there. That's the foundation for sure. But he goes on to say, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole body, some versions say being, but it really should be body. This is holistic pursuit of God. With his whole mind and heart and strength. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And that's often how... Um, what, what happens is when we give vent to our secondary desires and try to find satisfaction for our sexual desires, for example, in ways that can only be satisfied in God, that's how we get into addictions. So we are held in covenant relationship with God so that we may seek Him and satisfy our core thirst in Him in order that He might order our desires and help us to move towards overcoming the depths of our struggles and our addictions. The expression of covenant relationship, which declares the rock-solid reality within which the ups and downs of the experiences of relationship with God is what's in mind here. And the psalmist admits that even though God is in covenant relationship with him, sometimes he's still thirsty. Because that's the fallen human condition. We get thirsty. And unfortunately, we turn to the broken cisterns to try to, spy, try to satisfy our thirst. And all the time, God invites us to seek Him, to encounter Him, to fill up our souls uh, with His love. I'm impressed by the fact that the body is involved in the pursuit of God. Our bodies matter. Our world is, I think, greatly confused in its assumption that gender is what I feel. It's a disembodied idea. Something that has led so-called specialists to say there are now 64 genders. That's the last time I read anyway, 64 genders. Today's culture is similar to Greek Gnostic thinking in this regard. That is, they tend to view sexuality in a disembodied way. If I read my Bible correctly in Genesis 1.27, I'm sorry, I hate to break it to you, there's a binary. Male and female. And I do recognize that in the midst of the binary, there are also three other chromosomal anomalies. But these, are, I think, are considered anomalous precisely in relation to the binary Deep sympathy and support and guidance must be given to people who are born intersex, as I said earlier, that is, with genitalia that may be male and female, and no matter which way the family and the doctors decide to go at their birth surgically, they will undoubtedly experience gender confusion. But I simply want to make this point in general that, for, um, that what needs to guide us by and large is, um, apart from that anomalous situation, is um, what is the body and what is the body that has been given. You know, by the way, I don't like the word gender at all. Gender is actually a made-up word um, in the last century. 
that didn't exist before the last century. Um, I, that's why I know it's very clumsy, but I refer to the sextness of human beings, not their gender. Their sextness. Um, that's, I think, uh, really important. You know, as I speak about these things, I'm glad to know that I'm not totally on my own in all of these matters. Um, here is a, a Catholic scholar by the name of Peter Kreeft who once said in his very in, in, inimical way, he said, um, with regard, we don't think deeply about sex. We talk about it all the time. It's, it's, you know, it's on the billboards. It's on all the t TV shows. Uh, it's on The Bachelor. Confess that I sometimes watch that dreadful show. Um, Peter Kreef says, no, we do not think too much about sex. We think hardly at all about sex. Dreaming, fantasizing, feeling, experimenting, yes, but honest. Look it in the face, thinking hardly ever. Single and married persons simply image God in different ways. And I want those of you who are single to take heart from this. I think sometimes in churches, singles can feel a little isolated. They can feel like they don't belong but I want to tell you that you are made in the image of God. Stanley Grantz, a theologian at Regent a number of years ago who's now passed away, he's, he's written that in our non-sexual relationships, that is, as single people, we reflect the inclusiveness of the love of God in our friendships, whereas in marriage we mirror the exclusive nature of the love of God, that is, His covenant faithfulness to His people, and we do so in a manner that reflects the distinctiveness of our sexness in oneness. The design of God in creating the sexual drive was not just procreation, therefore. It was to drive humans to seek Him, to seek community, to move beyond themselves, to provide the reward of that pursuit in relational intimacy. One of our professors at Regent, uh, who, uh, who's been around a long time, is uh, Paul Stevens. Um, see if I can get this to move. Yes, here we go. He said, therefore, God-likeness. So remember we started out saying there's something about God in this. It's not sex over here. Why would God be involved in sex? I want to tell you, sex came from God. Sex mirrors who God is. It mirrors the Trinity. And so um, our man Paul Stevens says, therefore, God-likeness is a social reality. True spirituality is interpersonal, relational. Relationships are pathways to God. So the purpose of human sexuality is not merely for procreation or for the mutual blessing of covenant partners, though both are goods in themselves. Sexuality was designed to be first and finally contemplative so that we would seek God himself, whether we marry and procreate or remain, singles as sing or remain as single celebrating maleness and femaleness. In community, sexuality is designed to turn us towards God, to make us prayerful, and evoke our faith. I know for sometimes for single people hearing this, they might say, you know, I, that's all very well for you. But I want to say that this is the call. This is the deep challenge that moves beyond just taking cold showers. This is the encounter with the living God that can enable us to find a place of shalom and rest in Him. Sexuality is meant to be an other-orienting uh, relationship. But let me uh, close by talking about, so what am I trying to say here in, in a nutshell? We belong in covenant, so grateful for God's amazing love and forgiveness, no matter where we are. 
But that covenant inspires us to move, to love him, to seek him, to satisfy our thirst in him. And in that way, we order our disordered desires. We are transformed. We are made whole. We are made holy. And the psalm ends with actually four words about the pursuit of intimacy. First of all, the words, earnestly, I seek you. The challenge of this topic, the challenge of this psalm is not easy. And that's why I'm glad to hear the psalmist say, as he wrestles with his intimacy with God in his life, he says, earnestly I seek you. Actually, one translation has it, early I seek you. I have to get up in the morning early to encounter you, Lord, if I've got any chance of making it through the day. The pursuit of intimacy is, uh, is all important. And from that pursuit of intimacy with Christ comes the pursuit of intimacy with our spouse, comes the pursuit of intimacy with our friends if we're single, uh, and so on. It's, it's so important. Earnestly, I seek you. you know, I want to say that this is true of your life with God, and I want to say it's also true of your marriage. We need to keep being challenged to keep pursuing intimacy with one another and not grow bored with one another. I watch rest in restaurants. I sometimes watch married couples and they've got nothing to say to each other. They're enjoying the food, but that's about it. We need to be challenged to keep pursuing intimacy, whether marriage or, or unmarried. So in the pursuit of intimacy, there's the first priority, earnestly, early, I seek you. Number two, it must be holistically passionate. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. You know, for David, the pursuit of intimacy with God was a magnificent obsession. It affected his whole being, including his body. I'm so glad to hear some of you are going to be fasting soon. Because, you know, worship does involve the body. Paul, Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And at some point in his epistles, he says, I beat my body into subjection because sometimes it wants to disobey. And Paul wants to train that body through spiritual disciplines to walk with God. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. The pursuit of intimacy is the first priority. The pursuit of intimacy is holistically passionate. And thirdly, it is exclusively pure in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David had come to know that there are many alternative sources to satisfy his hunger, but they could not ultimately deliver. They were broken cisterns that Jeremiah refers to. We need to keep satisfying our core thirst in God as those who are married because that's the way in which we'll avoid placing too much pressure on our spouse to keep us happy. Your spouse wasn't given to you to make you happy. That, that, that's found in God. But secondly, the message for marriage in a parallel sense is that we too have tendencies to look beyond that of our spouse to greener grass. Cheap and tawdry substitutes, pornography, etc., etc. God calls us to a passionate life with God. Um, you know, perhaps if you remember nothing from the sermon but the following phrase, I would be greatly encouraged. Our experience of intimacy with Christ expels the controlling and compulsive power of lesser affections. That's a quote from Larry Crabb in his Leadership Magazine article. 
Our intimacy with Christ expels the controlling and compulsive power of lesser affections. And lastly, four, its greatest language is that of affirming praise. How does David express his intimacy with God? Only one way, praise, worship. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. My, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With some singing lips, my mouth will praise you. So the language of our intimacy with God at its highest is the worshipful praise that he actually enables us to give by his grace. In a similar fashion, the sweetest intimacy is expressed between humans through the language of praise. Nothing withers a marriage relationship like criticism. Affirmation is the life juice of any relationship. Don't assume your spouse feels affirmed. Tell them and tell them frequently what you appreciate about them and thank them often for all that they do. And those of you who are in friendships as well, affirm one another. There's a hunger for affirmation in every soul, often because it hasn't been there in their parental relationship. Affirm one another. Um, and fathers and mothers, affirm your children. I grew up in a Scottish home. I don't remember much praise. I only remember when I got 95% in a math test once that my dad said, where was the 5%? <laughs> and I had to claim a lot of healing around that. I encourage you, don't let your children have to find healing or go elsewhere for affirmation. Affirm your children. Affirm them fairly. Affirm them wisely. Affirm them well. We are held by the covenant of God who says, I will be your God and you'll be my people in order that we might seek him with all our heart in order that he might order our desires. This is divine and human sexuality. Let us pray. So we come to you afresh, O oh God, knowing that you are the answer to our deepest need. We know that you love us in ways, as we've been singing, that cannot even be measured. And we seek to receive that love today and ask that in response to that love, we may love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves by being the kind of persons that reflect your love. Bring healing, Lord, to our hearts where there's a need of healing. Bring healing to our relationships where there's a need of healing. Bless this congregation, Lord. Thank you for the hunger and thirst of your people to know you. Use them greatly in our time to upend some narratives and make a difference in our world. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.